0: Jennifer vanished sometime in the overnight hours. Right now, there is no trace. Investigators say evidence leads them to believe that she's dead. Stick my nose back on the trail. That's all I can do. This is already gone. Already gone. Already gone. Jody Christine Perrick was born September 2nd, 1996, in St. Joseph County, Michigan, her mother, Jo, told WSBT that Jody was beautiful inside and out. She was always happy. She always wanted to help. She liked to cook. She loved animals. She liked to fish and play dress-up. She was a princess and a tomboy, all wrapped up in one. November eighth, two 2007, was a typical day for 11-year-old Jody. She went to school at Riverside Elementary, where she was a fifth-grade student. After school, she played over at a friend's house. At around 4.45, Jody was seen riding her bike back to her house, which was less than half a mile away. But Jody never made it home. When she wasn't back by her 5.30 curfew, her mother knew something was wrong. She told WSBT, it was not like Jody. She never went anywhere without permission. She was always home on time. Joe gathered friends and family and they started searching for Jody. It was just after 7 p.m. when Joe called the police to report her daughter missing. Less than an hour later, she went to Reserve Police Officer Ray McCann II's house. Joe knew Jody had a crush on one of Ray's sons. She wanted to see if maybe Jody was there, but she wasn't. However, Ray offered to help look for Jody. After searching many locations on his own, Ray drove around until he found Joe and her friends, who were still out looking. Ray asked if they'd searched the Constantine Township Cemetery. It was about half a mile from Jody's house. Joe said they hadn't, and Ray went off on his own again. He didn't go to the cemetery, but Joe and her friends did. It was about 10.30 p.m. when Joe found Jody's bike leaning up against an old tombstone. Then, 100 feet away from the bike, Joe saw Jody's body. She looked peaceful, like she was sleeping. Joe later told WSBT that the only good thing about finding her daughter's body was that she got to hold her one last time. Joe added, I told her that I loved her, that I was so sorry that happened to her. Jody's hands had been bound behind her back. The binding agent was no longer there, but based on the marks, Investigators assumed handcuffs had been used. An autopsy determined that Jodi was sexually assaulted before she died of asphyxia from strangulation. Jodi had no defensive wounds or bruises. Joe told investigators she believed Jodi would have fought back against someone who tried to hurt her. This statement, coupled with the fact that Jodi's body had no defensive injuries, led investigators to believe Jodi knew her attacker. According to the South Bend Tribune, Jody's murder was Constantine's first in 30 years. It left the village shaken. Investigators canvassed the neighborhood Jody was last seen in, but no one raised any suspicion, so attention was turned to Ray McCann. According to an arrest affidavit, over the course of an hour and a half, Ray made suggestions to four people that they should check the cemetery, but he never went to search it himself. According to Wood TV 8, it was Ray's insistence on searching the cemetery, then not checking it right away, that made police suspect him from the beginning. It was such a random and frankly suspicious suggestion. Furthermore, investigators felt like Ray acted unnaturally following the discovery of Jody's body, although they didn't elaborate on what unnaturally meant. And Ray was a reserve police officer, so he would have access to handcuffs, which they believed were used to bind Jody's hands behind her back. In addition to being a reserve police officer, Ray was a Little League coach who made his living fixing trailers. In his off time, Ray liked to dress up as Elvis Presley and host karaoke in his garage, where there was a photo of Elvis on the wall. At the time of Jody's murder, Ray was married to a woman named Angela. He had two sons and a daughter. He was also very involved in his nephew's life. The father wasn't around, so Ray stepped in to fill that role. He did things like drive long distances to watch his nephew's wrestling matches. Neighbors told the Detroit News that Ray was outgoing and made friends easily. He would mow his older neighbor's lawns. Everyone seemed to like him. One friend, Keith, said, I couldn't name a single person who didn't like him. You couldn't pick someone less likely to do something illegal. Ray told investigators that on November 8th, he was home all day playing a football game on the PlayStation. When his boys came home from school, Ray took them to Dollar General to buy them two little laser guns. His wife Angela got home a little before 5 p.m., then started making dinner while Ray helped his boys with homework. The family had dinner about six o'clock. Ray watched the news and the kids got ready for bed. It was about 8 p.m. when Jody's mother Joe stopped to see if Jody was there, but Jody wasn't. Ray offered to help with a search, but first called his sister Ann to tell her what was going on. Then he called on duty Constantine officer Marcus Donker. Then he called his nephew Travis, who told him he heard Jody was possibly on her way to the DNS store to make a purchase. Ray left his house and went to the DNS store, but didn't find her, so he looked around buildings, baseball fields, the boardwalk, down by the river, and more. During his search, he found two bikes and notified Officer Donker to come check them out, but neither bike belonged to Jody. When none of the searched areas turned up anything, Ray suggested to Jody's family and a few officers that they should search the cemetery. Investigators asked Ray why he didn't just go check it out alone. He said he wanted to go with Officer Donker, but they didn't end up going. Ray eventually drove to the cemetery. He told investigators, That's where I seen everybody running around, screaming. I pulled my truck up to a certain point, get out, and run up there, and that's when I realized the mother had her. And that's when I realized she was dead. You could tell. Ray told investigators he wasn't involved in Jody's murder, but they didn't believe him. He was labeled a person of interest, which resulted in him being suspended by the police department. Ray would later resign. Before the month of November was up, investigators told the media that they believed Jody's killer was someone local. Police Chief Mark Honeysett added, I don't believe it was just someone passing through who picked her out investigators said they expected an arrest to happen soon. But listeners, nearly seven years would pass with no arrests. Throughout that time, investigators announced that Jodi's family had been cleared in her murder and gave updates to the media about where they were in the case. They did not release Jody's cause of death or that she'd been sexually assaulted. Investigators also didn't name Ray McCann as a suspect, but behind the scenes, they were desperately trying to tie him to Jodi's murder. According to the Detroit News, authorities collected DNA from Ray and 300 other residents. They accumulated 600 pieces of evidence, received 1,700 tips, conducted 3,000 interviews, and produced 7,000 pages of notes. None of it connected Ray to the murder. Investigators would end up interrogating Ray 20 times, and this for a total of more than 22 hours. He was always interviewed voluntarily and without an attorney. He took two polygraph tests and never wavered on his innocence. But no matter what happened, investigators would just not give up their theory that Ray was involved. They were desperate to solve the horrific crime. In 2009, retired Michigan State Police Detective Jim Bedell even came out of retirement to run for police chief of Constantine. He won that election, and he made solving Jody's murder his main priority. Bedell interviewed Ray on November fifth, two 2010. He said that he knew Ray had been interviewed numerous times and that he'd submitted to two polygraphs, but he wanted to hear Ray's story again. Ray told Bedell the same story he'd told in the past about what he'd done on the day of Jody's murder, in addition to the search he conducted. Bedell then said he was bothered by Ray's polygraph tests, adding, Whether you did it or not, I have a feeling you know more than what you're telling us. If you're protecting somebody. But Ray cut him off with, oh God, you know what? I wouldn't protect my own family. I wouldn't do it. Bedell told Ray that they were questioning him because of his polygraphs and his behavior. Ray continued to maintain his innocence and was eventually let go. Five months later, in April 2011, the Michigan State Police Cold Case Unit was put in charge of Jody's murder investigation. Detective Brian Fuller brought Ray in for questioning and asked him about his search. At this point, it had been more than three years since Jody was murdered. Ray had been interrogated numerous times, and he'd been accused of many things. Fuller assured Ray that he was not the only suspect. Officer Donker hadn't even been ruled out. Ray responded, Brian, I'm here to help you. You know, I want this as bad as you guys do. I don't want to go to my grave not knowing what happened to this little girl. I'd like to have my job back, to be honest with you. I loved being on the police department. Ray later said that this was the interview that made him realize he was a suspect. His hands had been photographed and his truck was seized for evidence. Later, his DNA was obtained. On July 11th, Ray was brought back in for questioning with the same detective. After he was read his rights, Ray told Fuller that he was scared and asked if he was going to jail. Fuller said he was one of Ray's only supporters on the cold case team, adding, The only possible way that I can go to bat for you is if you tell me the truth. The evidence has come full circle, and there's part of your story, a big part of your story, that is bullshit. The detective continued, you don't know how embarrassed I am from my coworkers right now because all I've done the whole time is say that you're a fucking good dude. I'm the laughingstock of this whole place right now. The only possible way that I can still save some face in this thing is for there to be an explanation for the lies that you've been caught in now. This is going downhill fast for you, and the only thing that is going to help you is for you to be truthful, and I know. I've seen it myself. I know you haven't been. Fuller told Ray that he knew he was lying about being home playing video games for most of the day Jody was killed. He said they had him on surveillance video around town, and that he lied about only owning one pair of handcuffs. As a reserve police officer, he'd have two pair of handcuffs. At this point, Ray started crying and said, Brian, I am not going to jail for somebody else's shit. He added, this is my life we're talking about. The hell I've been through, my family." what could I say? I didn't do anything wrong. Then, out of nowhere, Fuller told Ray the first of many major lies. We know scientifically that you touched her body. Ray responded, I did? The detective said, and we know without a doubt that you put her in that cemetery. Ray said, oh God, Brian, I did not. No, I did not. If I touched her at all, it was pulling her mother away. And if I happened to touch her, then that's how it happened. Fuller started up with a new lie, telling Ray that Jody's DNA was found on his clothes and inside his truck. Ray said that maybe the DNA got there when he hugged Jody's mom or when she sat in his truck to warm up. Fuller told Ray that Joe said this never happened, so there had to be another explanation. Like he was the killer? Fuller lied again, stating, this case has already been reviewed by the prosecutor's office, and the evidence about you is insurmountable. Ray responded, I don't understand that. You've got to promise me one thing. I don't know who did this, but if they hold me for whatever reasons, for more questions, you don't give up looking. Promise me that. Fuller said, I'm still not convinced that you killed her. Ray asked, is that what they're saying now? And Fuller told him, no, they're saying that you put her there. At that point, Ray reiterated that he didn't do anything to Jody. Fuller then started feeding Ray with suggestions of what happened, like Ray was covering for the person who killed Jody, Or maybe Ray accidentally killed Jody, panicked, then took her to the cemetery. When that didn't work, Fuller said that they knew Ray had been looking at porn sites during the day Jody was killed. He told Ray that by not telling him the truth, you're going to let somebody else tell the story about how you raped this little girl and what a horrible, horrible monster you are. Because that's the story they're going to tell, because they have to paint a picture. They have the stuff to support that to a degree, and they're going to twist it. They're going to say that you killed her. You killed her for sexual gratification, and they're going to use the porn stuff. You know what they're going to go with it, and I'm telling you, you can prevent that. And Ray responded, you know, when I leave here, I'm going to try to get some answers, because this is bullshit. At that point, Fuller lied to him again. Ray, listen to me. Listen to me. You did it. And it can be proven that you did. You're not a bad guy. You're a good guy. But whatever went wrong, went wrong accidentally. It's all right. Ray told Fuller, I understand that, Brian, but I didn't put her there. We can sit here all day and do this, but I'm telling you, I didn't put her there. You know what? I don't know if you believe in God, but someday we're all going to stand in front of him, And you guys are going to find out the truth, you know that? You guys are going to find out the truth that I did not put her there. One day we'll stand in front of the Lord and we'll all know. Hopefully, you and me will be standing by each other and I'll say, Brian, I told you. Weeks later, Ray was brought back in again for questioning. A second detective, Lieutenant Sean Lowridge, joined Brian Fuller. He told Ray that the town of Constantine needed answers. They're looking to crucify somebody. Ray recounted what he did on November 8th played the football video game, maybe went on some porn websites, then went to Dollar General with his sons. The detectives then informed Ray that his sons said they didn't go to Dollar General that day. After they got home from school, they didn't go anywhere. Now remember, this was nearly four years into the investigation. Listeners, do you remember what you did four years ago? Because I don't. Again, Ray told the investigators that he didn't have anything to do with Jody's death. One detective replied with a lie. Listen, don't say that because I don't want to hear it. Trust me, I know different, okay? He started up with the suggestions again, saying that maybe Ray found Jody's body in the cemetery earlier in his search, which is why he told people to look there. The detective said, what you're saying is you found her, but you were afraid because you didn't want them to think you put her there. When Ray said that wasn't what happened, the detective said they had another theory. Maybe this is their thought. Maybe Ray is living a double life. I mean, Ray says he's a Christian. Ray says he's this, that, a coach, whatever. But when mom leaves to go to work, Ray trolls the streets looking to pick someone up, gets on porn before he does it, goes to a religious site, a couple of them to feel better. Then he leaves the house. And with that, Ray responded, They can paint their damn picture, whatever they want to do. I didn't have nothing to do with this damn thing. I went out there, did my job that night, supposedly. I guess I didn't do it to a T. One detective said to him, You're a Christian, right? So if you want the grace in your life that you need right now, the only way you're going to get that is if you're honest. But their tactics weren't working. So one detective suggested another theory— Jodi visited Ray's home, then flipped out because she wanted to date Ray's son, who didn't want to date her. The detective said, You take control. You say, Hey, settle down, relax. And something happens in that process, even to the point where she is almost going to hurt herself and she gets handcuffs put on her because she's going crazy, okay? What else is there, Ray? He responded, I don't know. You tell me. But that, that's all bullshit. One detective said, we have the full investigation. I told you, we just don't know the why. The little part in there, okay? We know we have a dead girl. We know Ray's involved, okay? We've told you that. Ray asked, okay, so they're going to stick, what? Me in jail for something I had no part of? Is that how the system works? Guys, I don't know what you want from me. You want a confession that I can't give you. Guys, I didn't find her. I didn't put her there. I didn't kill her. After more than two hours of interrogation, Ray told the investigators he had to leave, stating, Sorry, guys. I'm just upset, all right? So, due to all of the quote-unquote discrepancies in Ray's stories about what he did up until Jody went missing and what he did during his search, a subpoena was issued for Ray to testify in front of a judge. Authorities were hoping to be able to charge Ray with perjury. On September 18th, 2012, Ray testified in front of a judge. His sworn testimony was consistent with his earlier police-conducted interviews and therefore contained the same inconsistencies. Even though investigators did not have enough for charges, they kept looking at Ray. Meanwhile, they told Ray's wife, they told his sons, they told his sisters. They told them that Ray was responsible and that investigators had the evidence to prove it. One of the investigators told Ray's wife, Angela, I don't know if Ray will ever just say the truth. He's going to have to be charged. He'll get so scared that he'll talk. Ray's sister, Julie, told the Detroit News that investigators informed her that Ray's DNA was found on Jody, and that sand from her sneakers came from Ray's yard. This quote-unquote proof made her start to question if her brother was innocent, and she eventually believed that he was guilty of what police accused him of. Ray's son, Pokey, said investigators told him that Ray was lazy, that Ray was possibly selling drugs, and that Ray may have used the home computer to seek out gay sex. Pokey was, quote, almost afraid to go home because of what he had been told by the police. Angela ended up leaving Ray, and she took the children with her. The rest of Ray's family, minus his daughter and mother, turned their backs on him. They believe what police said about Ray, that Ray was guilty of abducting, sexually assaulting, and murdering 11-year-old Jody Perrick. The Detroit News later reported that, If any statements made to Ray, his son Pokey, sister Anne, or Julie, were supported by evidence, they weren't found by the Detroit News in a comprehensive review of police and court documents. In November of 2013, investigators told WSBT that they had a good idea of what happened to Jody and who did it. They found male DNA on Jody's body. They just needed a match and more people to come forward with information. Then they'd have an arrest. Investigators added they'd resubmitted DNA recently but didn't get any hits. Right there, investigators admit to the public that they don't have a DNA match but they told Ray and his family otherwise. Investigators gathered all the evidence they had against Ray, and on April 17, 2014, Detective Brian Fuller submitted an arrest affidavit laying it all out. He was seeking perjury charges against Ray for lies he told during his September 2012 sworn testimony in front of a judge. In addition to the testimony, Fuller said that while looking through phone records, it was revealed that Ray didn't call his sister after Joe came by to see if Jody was at Ray's house. That was his first lie. Ray didn't lie when he said he called on-duty officer Marcus Donker. However, when investigators spoke with Donker, he said that Ray told him Joe asked him to help search for Jody. According to Joe, she went over to Ray's to see if Jody was there, not to ask him for help. Investigators viewed this as the second lie coming out of Ray's mouth. Next, Ray said he called his nephew Travis, who told him that he heard Jody was going to the DNS store, but Travis told investigators he never spoke to his uncle that day. Ray's first stop after leaving the house was supposedly the DNS store, but video surveillance didn't show him there until 8.43 p.m. He called Donker at 8.18 p.m., The store was only a three-minute drive from Ray's house. Investigators wanted to know what he was doing during that time. They found it very suspicious. Then there was Ray's claim that he found two bikes during his searches. Donker told investigators that when Ray told him about the first bike, Donker showed up immediately to investigate. According to the arrest affidavit, the bike was found to be in such a condition that it had not been moved in a very long time. Everyone who was witness to this bicycle discovery was in disbelief that Ray could even consider this particular bike could possibly have been the one Jody was riding. Everyone came to the conclusion that this discovery was nothing more than a diversion. Donker added that Ray didn't even tell him about the second bike. It seemed as though Ray had told yet another lie. Ray told investigators he didn't get to the cemetery until after Jody's body was found which was at around 10.30 p.m. But Donker said that occurred at 9.37 p.m. Ray mentioned he was going to check the cemetery he was less than a mile away, so he would have shown up before 10.30. According to cell phone records, Ray should have been at the cemetery as early as 10.07. Investigators came up with this time based on the fact that Ray placed a call at 10.07. The call was made from his friend's house, which was directly adjacent to the cemetery. Fuller ended the affidavit with, The purpose of this affidavit is intended to meet the burden of probable cause to substantiate a review on charges of perjury. I am aware of additional information which would further substantiate this. However, based upon the above facts, I respectfully believe that probable cause exists and to expound further could potentially risk exposing facts that would be crucial in continuing the investigation. So Ray is arrested and charged, not with murder, but with five counts of perjury. But because the charges were linked to a murder case, he now faced up to life in prison. Now that Ray's been arrested, investigators finally reveal Jody's cause of death telling the Sturgis Journal that Jody had been strangled, but they would not confirm that she'd been sexually assaulted. Investigators also mentioned that they'd tested hundreds of DNA samples and entered the DNA found on Jody's body in the national database, but had received no matches. This includes Ray McCann, so they've got the DNA in the database, but it's not a match to Ray who they're insisting killed her. One detective added that investigators believed a truck was involved, but that's all they could share. At Ray's preliminary hearing, four prosecution witnesses, including Jody's mother and Detective Fuller, testified about Ray's inconsistent statements. On cross-examination, Fuller admitted that he knew Ray's DNA had not been found anywhere when he asked Ray how Jody's DNA got in his truck and on his clothes. Fuller denied the questions as being false He said they were asked for a specific reason. Fuller also testified about a discrepancy he hadn't mentioned in the arrest affidavit. Ray lied about going down a path leading to a dam during his search for Jody. Fuller said that he knew Ray lied because video from a nearby Creamery surveillance camera didn't show Ray on the path. In an attempt to get the charges dropped, Ray's defense attorney reminded the court that Ray had been interrogated numerous times over the course of nearly seven years. He said, One person's memory is different from another person's memory. Who's to say which version is correct? Ray's attorney said the case against him was absurd. But the judge sided with the prosecution, and Ray was bound over for trial on all five counts. His bond was capped at $225,000. According to the Detroit News, within 10 days of his perjury arrest in 2014, he was attacked in prison. An inmate yanked him off the top of a bunk, struck him in the head with a padlock, and tried to gouge his eyes out. He didn't know the reason for the attack, but could guess. Police officers and suspected child killers aren't popular in prison. But Ray said the worst part about the false accusations against him was what happened outside of prison. Everyone, including his own family, turned their backs on Ray. In March of 2015, Ray pleaded no contest to one of five perjury charges. He was sentenced to anywhere from 20 months to 20 years in prison. Ray told Wood TV 8, I took the plea because it was the quickest way to get home to my family. It wasn't that I was guilty of anything. If Ray went to trial, he faced life in prison. Ray was now behind bars, but Jody's murder remained unsolved. Most everyone believed Ray was responsible, and they were frustrated with him for maintaining his innocence. Then, on July 28, 2015, a 10-year-old girl named Mackenzie escaped an abduction in White Pigeon, a town about four miles from Constantine. Mackenzie told police that a man living in the same mobile home park as her asked her to help move some boxes in his garage. When Mackenzie went inside, he grabbed her and told her, Shut up or I'll kill you. He held her at knife point and tried to tie her up with an extension cord. She was able to fight the man off and escape. Mackenzie led investigators back to the garage, which belonged to 65 year old Daniel Furlong. He ran a car detailing business out of his garage and worked odd jobs like mowing lawns and trimming trees. He also umpired games on a regular basis for 15 years. There were never any complaints against Daniel as an umpire. But there had been at least one prior criminal complaint against Daniel. Just before 7 a.m. on November 18, 2009, right after the second anniversary of Jody's murder, a 12 year old Constantine girl. We'll call her Cindy. Was walking to school when she noticed a man kneeling down with his back against the house in a dark corner watching her. Cindy called her mother, who we will call Susan, on the cell phone. Then she ran home. Of course, Susan was freaked out because she knew about what happened to Jody Perrick. Cindy was one year older than Jody, and they went to the same school. Susan knew that her daughter could have also been abducted, raped, and murdered. Cindy and Susan went to the police where Cindy reported that the man she saw was Mrs. Furlong's husband. Cindy knew the Furlongs because they lived two doors down from her. Susan later told Wood TV 8 about what happened next. The police told me not to worry about him. He was a good guy and they would go down and talk to him and they did talk to him. Then-Police Chief James Bedell interviewed Daniel, but he denied being outside at the time Cindy walked by his house, so the case was closed. Remember, this was just two years after Jody was killed, and no one had been arrested for her murder. Investigators were still trying to tie Ray McCann to her death when they ignored this significant event. Susan told Wood TV8, No one ever did anything, and I never allowed her to walk to school or in town again. I wouldn't even let her play in our own yard because I did not trust that man. When Wood TV 8 filed a Freedom of Information Act request to obtain Susan and Cindy's police report, Constantine police denied the request. Susan said she didn't hear from the police again until after Daniel's arrest. They asked if Cindy would testify against him if they went to trial. Following the attack on Mackenzie, Daniel was arrested and charged with knowingly restraining a child and assault with a deadly weapon. A DNA sample was obtained before he was released on bond and promptly moved 40 miles away to the city of Kalamazoo. Meanwhile, investigators entered Daniel's DNA into the national database, and in September, they found that he was a match against DNA found on Jody's body and her clothing. Susan was so upset that the Constantine police didn't take any DNA samples from Daniel back in 2009, even though they'd taken samples from more than 300 other people, including Ray, to test in Jody's case. If they had tested Daniel's DNA, they would have found a match, but instead, they focused on Ray, and Daniel was allowed to prey on other victims. Investigators also found that in November 2007, Daniel lived only two streets over from where Jody had last been seen alive. He'd been interviewed during initial police canvass, but he didn't raise any suspicion. On September 10th, Daniel was charged with murder, kidnapping, and criminal sexual assault in relation to Jody's case. At the station, investigators told Daniel about all the evidence they had against him, but he denied having any involvement a detective told him a drop of your blood dan was on her collar a question of whether or not you were involved is off the table daniel said he didn't think it was his blood and he was sticking to his story the next day investigators searched daniel's property in the garage they found a list of names of girls living in the same mobile home park investigators went to meet with daniel again to see if he wanted to make a deal If he confessed to Jody's murder and agreed to plead guilty to second-degree murder, they'd drop the charges of felony murder, kidnapping, and second-degree criminal sexual conduct. In addition, he would no longer face charges from his crimes against 10-year-old Mackenzie. He would also receive immunity for any other crimes committed in St. Joseph County, as long as he gave a full and honest confession. And he would have to take a lie detector test to prove what he told them was true. Daniel asked if he could have some time with his family before he decided how he wanted to respond. Investigators said that would be okay. Daniel spent more than an hour with his family, then told investigators he wanted to take the deal. Daniel confessed to the murder of 11-year-old Jody. He was 57 years old when it took place. He said that after Jody left her friend's 3rd Street house, she rode her bike by his 5th Street house. He was in the garage, cleaning some things out when he saw her ride by. He asked Jody to help him move something. Jody went into the garage, and Daniel zip-tied her hands behind her back, then threw her into his boat, which was stored in the garage. He sexually assaulted Jody while she wiggled around and begged him to let her go. He assured her that he would in a little while. Thirty minutes later, Daniel got up behind Jody and placed a plastic shopping bag over her head. Then he waited for her to die. Investigators asked Daniel why he put a bag over her head. He responded, I don't know why. At that time, I was panicking. I just wanted to get out of there. After Jody was dead, Daniel threw her bike in the back of his truck, then put her body in his passenger seat. He drove to the cemetery and put her in a spot he thought was the darkest. Daniel cut off Jody's zip ties and the plastic bag, then returned home. Once there, he threw away the zip ties, the bag, and his clothes. Daniel told investigators that he killed Jody alone. He didn't know Ray McCann. When he saw that Ray had been arrested, all he thought was, I was in the clear. Daniel also confessed to the attempted kidnapping of 10-year-old Mackenzie. He said he'd planned on assaulting and killing her in the same way he'd done to Jody. Investigators asked Daniel how the murder made him feel. He said, Sad. Very sad. Now I'm ashamed of myself. Ashamed that I did this to my family, but now that it's all coming out, it's taken a burden off of me. State Police Lieutenant Charles Christensen later told the media that investigators don't believe Daniel knew Jody. Christensen said, I think it was, for the lack of a better term, the opportunity presented itself with him, unfortunately, and it happened to be Jody Perrick. Many people who knew Daniel told the media they were shocked by his arrest. They didn't see him as a threat. Several weeks after Daniel confessed, Constantine Police Chief Mark Honeysett went to visit Ray in prison. Ray later told the Detroit News that he thought Honeysett was going to apologize to him and tell him he was free to go home. But instead, Honeysett continued lying to Ray about all the evidence they had against him. Honeysett even told Ray that he knew he was friends with Daniel Furlong. Ray continued to maintain his innocence stating he didn't know Daniel. Honeyset later told Wood TV 8 that even after Daniel's confession and his conversation with Ray, he still questioned if Ray was involved. He wasn't convinced one way or another. On November 19, 2015, eight years after Jody was brutally killed, Daniel pleaded guilty to her second-degree murder. In January, he was sentenced to serve between 30 and 60 years. There was a lot of buzz in the media about if Daniel had confessed to any other crimes as part of his plea deal. Investigators said he told them he didn't commit any other crimes in St. Joseph County. But one crime investigators and locals alike wanted to know about was the nineteen ninety seven abduction of six year old Brittany Beers. This occurred in St. Joseph County. According to the Charlie Project, during the evening hours of september sixteenth, nineteen ninety seven, Brittany played outside of her family's residence at the Village Manor Apartments in Sturgis, Michigan. Around 8.30, Brittany's mother, Tina, left to run errands. When she left, she watched Brittany riding her bike around the neighborhood. It was about five minutes later when Britney's brother saw his sister sitting on a bench. Not long after, a witness noticed Brittany talking to an unknown man driving a red or brown midsize vehicle. When she was done talking to the man. Brittany told the witness that she made a new friend. This was the last time anyone saw her. When Tina returned home about five minutes after nine, she realized Brittany was missing. Tina and her son looked around for Brittany, but she was nowhere to be found. Police were called in and a thorough search was conducted. Brittany's bike was found abandoned, but that was all they found. Sketches of the man in the red or brown car were distributed. According to the Charlie Project, Daniel bears a striking resemblance to the sketch of the man. His known crimes were similar to Britney's disappearance, and Jody closely resembled her. Daniel also lived in Sturgis in 1997. State Police Lieutenant Christensen agreed that the composite sketch looks a lot like Daniel, and he wouldn't be surprised if Britney's killer was Daniel. He said, quote, it wouldn't surprise me if he has killed somebody else. Daniel's attorney told the media that Daniel denied abducting Brittany. As of today, Brittany's case remains open and unsolved. According to the Charlie Project, Daniel remains one of the few persons of interest in her case. He is currently incarcerated in Lakeland, a facility that houses geriatric prisoners. His earliest release date is September 2045 when he will be 95 years old. It is likely that Daniel Furlong will die in prison. Now, Ray, he was not released from prison after Daniel's conviction. Instead, he was kept behind bars until he became eligible for parole in December 2015. After he was released, Ray moved to a town about 15 miles from Constantine the only time he goes back to his hometown is to visit his father's grave. Ray told the Detroit News that he was glad his father died before he saw what happened to him. The perjury conviction stayed on Ray's record. His reputation was still in shambles, and every member of his family, besides his mother and daughter, had shunned him. In March 2016, Target 8 released results of an investigation they had done into Ray's case for their series, Making a Monster. They filed a Freedom of Information Act request and received numerous pieces of evidence, including more than seven hours of recorded interrogations with Ray. Target 8 also obtained the surveillance footage from the creamery that Detective Fuller said under oath showed that Ray wasn't near the dam when he said he was. After watching the grainy footage. Target 8 realized the Creamery's camera hadn't even been pointed at the dam, so there was no way Fuller could know that Ray wasn't there. As it turns out, it was actually Fuller that lied under oath, not Ray. When Michigan State Police were called out on their lies, they said the interrogation techniques used on Ray were, quote, accepted and legal methods. And they're right. The detectives weren't doing anything against the law. It's completely legal for officers in the United States to lie to people. In one good move, the Michigan State Police stated they were convinced Daniel acted alone, and they cleared Ray in writing for the first time. But then St. Joseph County Prosecutor John McDonough defended Ray's perjury convictions to Detroit News, stating, Ray pleaded no contest. He said, I stand behind everything my office and the police did. Ray told the news that he only pleaded no contest because he was scared of getting an even longer sentence if the case went to trial. Because of Target 8's investigation, the Michigan Innocence Clinic at Michigan Law and the Center on Wrongful Convictions at Northwestern University's Pritzker School of Law got involved in Ray's case. In June 2017, Ray's attorneys filed an affidavit from the creamery manager, who stated the surveillance camera was not pointed at the path. On December fifteenth, a judge exonerated Ray after finding that police either lied or were wrong about evidence used to convict him. In May of 2019, Ray was awarded $40,000 for his wrongful imprisonment. Michigan Innocence Clinic Director David Moran stated in a press release that while they were grateful Ray was exonerated, The victory came too late to avoid 20 months behind bars, the loss of his job and marriage, and being ostracized in his community. Ray lost his entire family, and all he could get was $40,000. His family went from thinking that he was an incredible man to a pedophile and murderer. In December of 2019, Ray filed a federal lawsuit against the agencies that pursued a case against him without probable cause. He claimed that the agencies fabricated evidence and tried to get him to confess to murder. The Court of Claims ruled the state should pay Ray nearly $88,000. But the state appealed, and in December of 2020, the Court of Appeals vacated the judgment, stating that the Court of Claims awarded Ray compensation for his unlawful detention prior to the time he was incarcerated. The Court of Appeals remanded for further proceedings. Ray appealed the decision to the Supreme Court, who denied considering the application in June of 2021. That's the last available update in his case. The exoneration of Ray McCann led to a lot of discussion about the consequences of allowing officers of the law to lie to people. Grand Valley State University professor Brian Kingshot told Wood 8 TV that Ray's case is proof that changes need to be made. Officers are bullying people and it's leading to false confessions, wrongful imprisonments, and worse. Thank you for listening to this episode of Already Gone. I'm Nina Instead, the producer and voice behind the Already Gone podcast. I appreciate you listening, and please be safe.